And it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello, friends, and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, a frank conversation with a neuroscientist, not named Frank, about what we know and don't know about the brain. Now, you may think that we know a whole lot because you've probably seen all those pretty pictures of brain scans that appear in the media practically on a daily basis. You know, those images that show different parts of our brains lighting up when we do math, or remember our childhood, or recognize a face, or listen to music, or lust after something, or think about baseball, as the case may be. It's interesting stuff, yes, but those brain scans only look at large patches of brain, not the intricate details. It's in some ways like looking at a vast rainforest from an airplane. Yeah, you can make out some of the contours and general outlines below, but you have little or no idea what is going on down there under the forest canopy. You cannot see the dense tangle of neurons that actually make up the brain. Well, my guest today, the MIT neuroscientist Sebastian Sung, says that we need to get down on the ground, out of the plane, and plunge into the jungle itself, there to hack our way through it and explore all that neural undergrowth, branch by branch, connection by connection. In fact, he says it would be ideal to trace all the synapses in the brain and to do for those trillions upon trillions of connections what we've already done for the human genome. They even have a nice name for the sum total of those connections. They are calling it the connectome. Now, mapping the connectome may have seemed impossible or at least impractical in the past, but Sebastian Sung says it may be doable at long last thanks to new computer technology some of which he and his colleagues are developing right now. And it would be well worth the try, he says, because it is in those connections, the detailed wiring of the neurons themselves, that we may finally discover how the brain really works and how thought bubbles up from that soggy cerebral tissue to produce what we call a mind and a personality. Sebastian Sung is the author of a new book. It's called Connectome, How the Brain's Wiring Makes Us Who We Are. I spoke to him just this past week. Sebastian, you are a, a professor of computational neuroscience at MIT? That's right. Does that mean that you don't get your hands dirty actually handling brains? Great question. <laughs> well, I would say most professors don't really get their hands dirty. They're reduced to being uh, talkers and managers. I have uh, done things with real brains in my life, but it's true that these days I mostly direct computational efforts, efforts uh, designed to analyze data that's taken from the brain. And your background is actually in, in physics, theoretical physics. Yes, well, I'm a little bit of a jack of all trades. I studied theoretical physics. I worked at Bell Labs where I learned a lot about computer science, but now I'm in a neuroscience department. But most of your training was not uh, geared toward ultimately understanding the brain, was it? That's right, but all of us are lifelong learners, and professors get the luxury of being 
lifelong learners more than most. So we get to learn new things. Old dogs can learn new tricks. But you know the history of neuroscience is, is um, full of guys who, who came in from other fields confident that they would do what uh, psychologists and, and neurophysiologists and others hadn't done and who were then humbled by the mighty brain. I would say that's accurate, but in general, I would say all people who have studied the brain have been humbled. <laughs> that's true. You know, there is this huge fad right now, uh, and, and it's not the first time in, in the history of science, but there's a, a huge vogue for, for brain books and brain studies. And uh, your book is a little different in one respect in that it's full of these cautionary statements, uh, just to quote one of many. This chapter has been a mixture of empirical fact and theoretical speculation biased uncomfortably toward the latter. So if one reads this book closely, they can see that uh, despite a lot of ambition, there's also a huge number of caveats about how little we know and how little um, evidence we even have at this point for a real understanding of how the brain works. Am I right? Yes, I'm, I'm, you're very perceptive here. And I am sometimes amused by people who are put off by those caveats because some of those same people will just swallow it when people say, I understand the brain, here's how it works. And uh, I'm just being frank and open about uh, what we don't know. And that's what science is really about. Uh, you have to actually be self-critical and realize that you don't know something to actually make progress. Nonetheless, you do make some really ambitious proposals in the book. In fact, I'd say that the real thrust of this book is a, a kind of research agenda uh, that, that you are hawking. Um, and we'll get to that. But I want to talk about the, just the, the scale of the task. Um, these are oft-quoted numbers, but let's do it again. A hundred billion neurons, that is nerve cells in the brain, more or less. Yes. Uh, did you count them? I didn't count them personally. <laughs> But people have estimated. <laughs> it's, it's, it's no trivial matter. Obviously, you can't get that number by counting every single one, but people have, have uh, tried their best to estimate the number. And then each of these neurons, these, these nerve cells, has anywhere from, on average, 1,000 to 10,000 branches that connect to other neurons? Well, I would say 10,000 synapses. Those synapses are usually between branches. Okay, okay. So, so 10,000 connections to other nerve cells. That's right. But, you know, many, many, many branches per nerve cell. That's right. Uh, and, in fact, um, I, I have no idea whether this is accurate, but I actually got some numbers on the number of trees in the Amazon rainforest. Oh, wow. And, and, a, and a guess as to how many branches those trees have. And one could say, because I don't think anybody's going to be able to absolutely disprove me, that a single brain has about as many roughly branches or connections as the Amazon rainforest has branches of trees. Did you find out how many trees are in the forest? Well, I found a guy who's estimated the number of trees per acre, the number of acres in the forest, and roughly the number of branches per tree. And, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in each of these, but we might yeah. be within an order of magnitude or so. And, you know, th the only reason to say this is just to make people's minds explode. Um, so I don't have to be that accurate, do I? No, that's, that's <laughs> fine. I... Numbers are fun, though. Remember, I was trained as a physicist, so I have a weakness for numbers. Well, you have another number in here that you estimate that um, if you take all of these branches, which is, you know, the wiring of the brain, and put them end to end, uh, you'd have millions of miles of wire in the brain. Yes, yes, that's a, a staggering idea. Or I guess another number would be in a cubic millimeter of brain, there could be a billion synapses. 
a billion connections. A in billion a, connections. In a cubic right. millimeter. This is a speck that's just large enough to see. <laughs> yes, and, and consider imaging technologies like MRI. People are often fascinated by the pictures of the living brain that MRI can deliver us, and they appear in newspapers all the time. But one pixel of an MRI image might be the equivalent of a cubic millimeter. Oh, wow. So that's blurring a billion synapses into one dot. And, and a functional MRI is using uh, magnetic resonance imaging to show activity in different parts of the brain, usually yes. depicted as lighting up. Uh, these are the areas that are metabolically active when, we, when we're doing mental tasks, and that is presumed to represent the area that's really doing the information processing. Yes, yeah, so MRI tells us where to look if we want to understand a particular mental phenomenon. But at a very but it crude tell level. Us how that happens, because it's just extremely coarse. Extremely coarse, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure if you use this analogy, but I've heard it used before. You know, it's like looking at a city from an aircraft, uh, you know, 10,000 feet uh, right. above it and, and seeing what buildings are lighting up and trying to deduce what's going on from that. You know? Yes, that's a good analogy. <laughs> Um, let's get a little more uh, detailed here, though. Um, you know, at the risk of a lot of simplification, uh, each of these nerve cells we talked about, all 100 billion of them, works in, in a similar way, right? Well, that, that is a, a major simplification, and people actually argue about that. Okay. Uh, but you as so, a computational guy wish it were true, right? It might be that a very large percentage of them function in a similar way. But in biology, of course, there's always exceptions, mm -hmm. and people get in big debates about whether those exceptions are just exceptions, or maybe they're the rule. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, in your computational models, um, do you assume that neurons are, are, are kind of um, uniform in, in the way they work? People have in the past. Now, we know that neurons are not uniform because they are shaped so differently. If you look at neurons in different areas, they might have very different branching patterns. Yeah. And even neurons in the same area can have very different appearances. So just the, the form of a neuron can look very different. And what does that different form reflect? Well, one, one thing it might reflect is just different connections. Maybe neurons all handle their signals the same way, but they're connected differently mm -hmm. to different inputs. Uh, whereas another school of thought is that the neurons actually do different things with their inputs. Huh. It's not just how they're connected. Now, now the gross simplification that um, you offer in your book and that you know, one reads about here and there, there are a lot of connections coming in. Um, you know, as we say, a lot of uh, branches coming in. These are called dendrites. Uh, they, yes. they connect to other nerve cells, and they carry signals from other nerve cells. They go into the, the body of the neuron. There's some kind of little computation that goes on, and then it spits out a signal that it sends to other Yes. And in fact, that computation may be something like a vote. A vote. So you've got signals coming in saying what? Saying be active or don't be active. Yes or no, thumbs yes up or, no. or thumbs yes down. Yes or no. And a single neuron is, is taking a vote of all the yes and no signals from the neurons that send it connections. And uh, it's weighing the vote and deciding whether to then send a signal to more neurons that says yes or no, right? Yes, yes. So it's just like a little uh, ballot box there. A, a ballot box, but every <laughs> neuron is taking a different vote, so it's a whole bunch of different votes that are somehow feeding back on each other. So that's a simple version, right? That's a simplified version, and it's probably a good approximation for a large 
number of neurons. And by doing this uh, times uh, a trillion or whatever, supposedly, um, thought arises? That's the idea. (laughs) This reminds me a little bit of that famous South Park uh, episode with the underwear gnomes. Do you know that one? No, I don't know that one. Okay, well, these gnomes decide to collect underpants, uh, and they have a business plan. The business plan says, one, collect underpants, and then step three is profits, but step two is question mark. I mean, <laughs> well, yes, but that's the that is, is ultimately the fundamental mystery of neuroscience. How do I take elements that are dumb and put them together to make something that's intelligent? And that is the mystery. A miracle happens, right? That's the way that we see it right now. But we want to understand that miracle and maybe reduce it to something that we. It's still still miraculous and amazing, but not uh, uh, something that we can not something that is beyond our comprehension. Mm-hmm. Well, guys like you, I mean, computational neuroscientists can create computer models that actually uh, simulate the action of a whole bunch of vote weighing processors, like these neurons we're describing, right? Putting them together in various arrays and actually producing real computation, um, figuring things out. Um, yes, you're right. I was recently visiting Microsoft and Google, and researchers were so excitedly telling me that their latest artificial neural networks are improving the accuracy of speech recognition and language modeling and so on. So some approaches to artificial intelligence are based on the simple network models of voting neurons. Do you feel like that's evidence that that's the way the brain really works? It's suggestive. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It suggests that maybe we're on the right track, but it's far from being scientific confirmation. That's why we need to find connectomes. If we find out a lot more detailed information about how neural networks in the brain actually function, we can go beyond mere suggestion and do real science. Well, you just said the magic word. Um, it was coined only a few years ago, right? Connectome? Yes, yes. It's an older idea. So the idea of mapping a nervous system dates back maybe to the late 60s, and in the 1970s and 80s, all the connections between the neurons of, the, of a tiny worm were mapped. But the word connectome has emerged only recently. Uh, uh, in 2005, it was, it was used for the first time in print. But it's meant to uh, draw an analogy with the genome, the collection of all of our genes uh, inside one individual. Our connectome is the collection of all the the uh, neuron connections in our brain, right? Yes, that's correct, but that sounds a little abstract. So I like to use the analogy of a flight map that you see in the back of airline magazines. That's what I love to look at when I'm on the plane and I'm bored. Imagine every city in that map is replaced by a neuron, and every flight between two cities is replaced by a connection. And then multiply that by... Billions, 100 billion or cities. Yeah, yes. 100 billion cities. That's right. The, for your for your connect up. That's right. <laughs> well, you are you are throwing your lot in with a a kind of school of thought that's existed about the way the brain works for a very long time called connectionism, right? Yes. Uh, tell me what it means. Connectionism is the idea that the functioning of the brain is very much based on how the neurons are connected to each other. It's, it's about the idea that the mind depends greatly on the organization of neurons. If you think about 
how the brain functions, is it just that we have 100 billion neurons? Is it the number that matters? Or is it the intricate way in which these neurons are organized so that they can cooperate to generate thoughts, feelings, and perceptions? And what is that organization embedded in? Well, the organization is really due to the connections. That's, that's what the doctrine says. So it's the wiring diagram, in a way, that counts. That's right. Um, what's the alternative to that? That seems like you know, a pretty self-evident idea. What's the alternative? Well, the alternatives are, there's many different things that have been proposed. Some people like to stress, well, maybe single neurons are much more complex than you give, it, give them credit for. They're not just these voting machines, but they can do more complicated things. And other people argue, well, there may be other kinds of interactions between neurons than just the ones between these synaptic connections that are mediated by the synaptic connections. I think these, these other comments are true, but I would doubt that they capture most of what's going on. I do believe that it is very much in the organization of connections. But that's not science, just to say there's no other possibility. We actually have to make our understanding much more precise. The, the poverty of imagination uh, situation is never a good way of, of deciding that something is true. If people tell you, well, how could it be any other way? That's not, that, that is not an argument from science. Yeah, yeah. Because always we can be surprised by how poor we are at imagining the alternatives. Well, I was thinking um, one alternative would be, you're saying, in a sense, the, the real functionality is embedded in the anatomy, the way, yes. the, the way things are connected and the kinds of connections they have, because synapses are, are quite different. They can shut down activity or they can, um, you know, amp up activity. They can yes. be strong or weak, you know, and so on and so forth. But uh, another way of explaining it would be it's not the anatomy, it's the activity. Um, yes. The, the incredibly complicated uh, electrical activity of the brain at any given instant that, that will really tell you what's going on, not so much the connections, which is just a kind of... Um, uh, substrate or platform uh, on which all this activity is superimposed. Yes. Yes, so some people say, look, it's the activity. We know that neurons are sending signals to each other whenever we think and feel, but I would argue that that by itself is not a sufficient explanation because what causes neurons to generate those activity patterns? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And more than that, Activity patterns come and go. They're not constant. How do, we, how do we explain the difference between somebody who smokes a cigarette once as opposed to somebody who is a habitual smoker? It might, it might very well be that the activity patterns in these two people are the same when they are smoking a cigarette. But it's just that that, that activity pattern of smoking a cigarette doesn't appear very often or at all uh, in the person uh, who doesn't smoke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What explains that? What explains those tendencies to produce certain activity patterns? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I would argue that that's the connectome. But l- let's, let's back up, though. Sure. There's another embellishment that people put on that argument, and they try to make it the hardware-software distinction. You know, you ju- that's exactly what I was about to ask you. Yes. So people who are familiar with computers say, well, the wiring of the computer doesn't matter. That's not where the functionality is. It's the software. I can load in a different kind of software and my computer then can have a different kind of functionality whenever I do that. Exactly. 
these people would equate the neural activity with the software and the connections, the anatomy with the hardware. Exactly, yeah. But I would argue that's a false analogy uh, for several reasons. So one of them is that your connectome actually changes. So we can also reprogram ourselves, as it were, by learning new things. And the best hypothesis for how that happens is that our connectomes change when we are going through experiences. So, in fact, the connectome could be the analog of the computer program or the software. And the other response is that a computer is a dangerous analogy because it's a general-purpose tool. It's a very special kind of tool. It's as if you could take every tool in your toolbox, the screwdriver, the hammer, and so on, and it could all be one tool that can serve as anything. Right. We know that about computers, that if we put in any software, uh, in principle, any computational task can be performed by a single computer if we just change the software around. Yeah, Alan, Alan Turing proved that. What's that? Alan Turing. Alan Turing, exactly, yeah, exactly. That. That's the idea of Turing universality. Yeah. But in the case of the brain, we know that there are different parts of the brain that are dedicated to different functions. That's the whole point of regional specialization. So every part of the brain appears to be a special purpose computer. Yeah, not to push the computer analogy too far, but a computer has circuitry, general purpose circuitry. It has some dedicated circuitry designed to perform specific kinds of computation, like a graphics yes. processor, you know, a, a, a numeric processor, things like that. It has software that's loaded in, you know, on startup or when you activate a program, but it also has firmware, which is sort of built in uh, code that's there even when the thing's shut off. Right. Um, uh, could the connectome be sort of like firmware? Well, now we're getting into really the nitty-gritties <laughs> of, of the computer comparison. Yeah, I guess the other, which may be unwarranted completely, I know. Now, the other, the other basic difference is that in a digital computer, the memory and the, and the CPU are separated from each other. Right. Something does the computation, and the data has to be fetched back and forth from the memory. Right. But it's not clear that in the brain that that kind of division exists. Mm -hmm. Remember, the brain is highly, a highly parallel device as opposed to a serial computer. And uh, it doesn't appear to be that there's one part that's the, the CPU and one part that's the memory. Right. And, and there's a lot of evidence, um, that some of which you give in your book, that in fact learning and forgetting, uh, thinking, imagining, all of these things may involve uh, the creation or destruction or the strengthening or weakening, the modification of connections. That's right. So, you know, very famous experiment, uh, you raise uh, lab rats in what they call a, a deprived environment, an environment that has virtually no sensory stimulation, uh, and then you raise some in a very rich environment. You can see that the rats raised in the rich environment where there's a lot of activity, a lot of things to see and hear and smell, and their brains have many more connections, right? Yes, yeah, so the amazing thing is that after experiences that induce learning, the brain actually does seem to be enlarged on average. At the level of individuals, you may not be able to see this, but if you average over many individuals, there is a, a statistically significant change in brain size, as you might expect from not naively, right? If you work out your muscles, your muscles get bigger. So, it, it, so it, amazingly, it's sort of true of the brain. But 
I would argue that that is really only scratching the surface of what's happening. What's really happening is that the organization of the connections of those neurons is changing. Mm -hmm. And we, up to now, have had only the crudest measure of these structural changes, which is size. But to move beyond that, we have to look at the organization. But presumably, behind the difference in size is a difference in connectivity, yeah? That's right, but I would say that it's probably much more than just an increase in the number of connections. Right, right. I mean, it's, it's the specific changes that really matter. Um, is there evidence, though, that, um, you know, a memory uh, or a skill or something else, some other mental uh, improvement or mental change immediately results in a change in connectivity in the brain? There is some evidence that changes in connections accompany learning. This is evidence that has emerged over the last 10 years. But we would like to see much more specific evidence of that sort. And in particular, what I'd like to see is reading a memory from connections. If we really understood uh, how memories are encoded in connections, we should be able to read them out. And so that's one of the big dreams of the field of connectomics. Hasn't that been done in a sense in, um, at least in simple organisms? I mean, thinking of very famous work done by people like Eric Kandel, who won the Nobel Prize in, in uh, I think, 2000. He, he was looking at a California sea slug uh, and the way in which certain really, really, really basic primitive behaviors were encoded in uh, neural networks. And um, if I remember right, he showed how you could condition a sea slug to retract its gills sort of defensively um, by giving it an electric shock and touching it. Uh, a touch wouldn't normally you know, cause it to retract these gills really, really uh, actively. But if you accompany it by an electric shock, you could condition this sea slug to retract its gills even when you just touched it. You retract them actively. Uh, yes, that's, a, that's important work. And, and let me just say that, that he then traced that to some changes in some synapses. So he, he showed how the connection actually encoded this learned behavior. Yeah? Yes, yeah, so to state that more abstractly, that was an example of a reflex behavior. Yes, yes. Which is a, an involuntary reaction to a stimulus. Exactly, yeah. Many reflex behaviors are modeled by reflex arcs which means a simple pathway from a sensory neuron to some other kind of neuron to a motor neuron, which drives muscles. Right. In our knee-jerk re reflex, when the doctor taps uh, our leg just below the knee, there's a uh, sensory neuron that carries that signal to the spine. It is then linked up to a motor neuron that goes back to the leg and causes us to kick. Super simple. Exactly. Yeah. The reflex arc is, is actually one of the most basic ideas in connectionism because it's a way of relating connections to behavior. If you have a pathway from sensory neurons to motor neurons, you can explain, potentially explain a reflex. And by changes in the connections in this pathway, you could explain changes in the reflex, correct? Right. So in the case of Eric Kandel, he had some success in tracing this to a single pathway and the learning to a single step in this pathway, a single connection. What we now have to undertake is understanding changes that involve whole patterns of many connections. That's much more difficult, right? If I can narrow down learning to a single synapse in a small animal, that's great. 
But to understand learning in animals like us, we have to consider whole patterns of many connections. That's the challenge. So what is the most... And, and, and I should give a cautionary note, which is that even in those simple animals, the idea that a single synapse is, is responsible for the learning is probably simplistic. Uh-huh. Um, what is, as far as you know, the most complicated behavior or memory that has been traced to a specific set of connections in the brain? Fear conditioning is one. So an animal can be trained to fear a stimulus. There's some, some veterans who, whenever they hear a loud noise, become extremely afraid because they remember their experiences on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And there are analogs of this in the laboratory with animals, that animals can learn to fear certain stimuli. And this has been traced to connections involving a part of the brain called the amygdala, which seems to be important for emotional experiences. Right. And it's been traced to specific connections. So in a sense, you've got, you know, some good evidence that your connectionism model w- explains this behavior. Of connections. Yeah. Groups of connections. So yeah. it's, it's very much like the Candell example, except now, instead of talking about a single connection between two neurons, we might talk about a whole population of connections from one neurons in one brain region to another brain region. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, is this, you know, do you feel like this is real, real strong evidence for connectionism, or, or is this really far short of your goal? It's still far short because, again, this is, in some sense, a very simple behavior stimulus response. And uh, it doesn't involve sort of the intricate patterns of connections that probably underlie things like, what did you have for dinner yesterday? Or a pianist's memory of a Beethoven sonata. That could not be traced down to a population of connections. You couldn't just say the way that a pianist learned to play a piece is simply a strengthening, uh, indiscriminate strengthening of a whole bunch of connections in some brain area. Right. It's got to be more intricate than that. Well, one of the holy grails of a certain kind of neuroscientific research is to find a memory, you know, to find the location of a memory in the brain. And, and this has a long history. It's almost like the, the search for the fountain of youth or something. A lot of explorers have gone in and searched for years and not found it. The most famous, I think, at least one of the most famous was Carl Lashley. Um, right. He, he set out, I think, in uh, the teens or 20s, the 1920s, to to find what he called the engram, which is the location, uh, in a specific location for a memory. And he trained rats to run mazes and then went and selectively destroyed little bits of their brain and then tested their maze running skills. And he did this over and over again, destroying little parts of the brain, and never did find the location of that skill and gave up and ended up proposing something totally opposite, which is that um, functionality uh, is distributed equipotentially across the entire brain. It doesn't, ha- you know, these memories don't have a specific little location. Um, but, but guys like you are still very, you know, believe that it's still possible, might still be possible to find specific locations for memories, right? Well, I think that the localization paradigm is limited. Mm-hmm. That you may never be able to say that memory is confined to just this particular location in the brain. Sure. But I was thinking more in terms of a set of connections. Yes, a set of connections, but that, that, you're right. So if a memory is really stored as a pattern of connections, that pattern of connections might involve neurons that are actually over the entire brain. 
right. distributed distributed over the entire brain. And that's that's the 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 reason why it might be difficult to localize memories to particular regions of the brain. Now, you, you, you give a funny example, though, of a kind of localism, right? Uh, uh, I think this was an fMRI study, or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was uh, using electrodes. But um, it, it was showing people pictures of uh, celebrities like Jennifer Aniston and finding specific neurons that were active when people recognized her face. Right. A Jennifer Aniston neuron. Yes. Is that a local localized memory? So let me just give two caveats there. Yes, so please. <laughs> we like to use the term Jennifer Aniston neuron because in that experiment, the neuron was activated only by pictures of this lovely actress <laughs> and not by pictures of Halle Berry or even Julia Roberts. Right. But in that experiment, the human subject did not see pictures of all possible actresses. There just wasn't enough time. So we can't exclude the possibility that that neuron might be activated by some other actress. <laughs> okay. 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 So really, all that, we can all that we can conclude from that experiment is that this neuron is activated by a small percentage of celebrities. Okay. Okay. Well, all we Wait, need which to do might, is... Which might, you know, it's possible that it could be just Jennifer Aniston, but we don't know that for sure. Well, it, it still sounds like a kind of localism to me. I mean... Yes. Uh, but, but let's suppose that this neuron... Suppose that this neuron is activated only by Jennifer Aniston. Let's, let's consider the extreme possibility. Yeah. Does that mean that the memory of Jennifer Aniston is only in this neuron? And I would say no, because in order for that neuron to perform that computation, it had to get inputs from other neurons. And those neurons had to get inputs from other neurons. So there's many other neurons that are involved, and you're just seeing the final product of that uh, computation. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it seems to me conceptually impossible that a neuron could represent Jennifer Aniston. A representation of Jennifer Aniston means an association of all kinds of information, uh, her face, her, her, her past movie and TV roles, her name, yes. and, and all the things you associate with her. So, uh, you, know how in a, you know how sometimes in an organization there are people who try to take credit for everything? Yeah. <laughs> just because they, they're, the, they're the ones who talk about it? Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't mean they're the solely responsible for that achievement, right? Right. But nonetheless, it's so tantalizing. It doesn't mean that Jennifer Aniston is encoded in this one neuron, but it, it, it does suggest that this one neuron is linked up in some very specific way to, you know, that collection of synapses that does mean Jennifer Aniston, you know? Right. So I would say that possibly the recognition of Jennifer Aniston is encoded in the activity of this neuron. So, but if we the follow... memory of Jennifer Aniston, right. I would say, involves all the neurons. Right. We could imagine, though, that if it's a voting process, that this is the um, this is the final neuron in the chain that says, "Okay, the votes are in. Uh, hair matches up, face matches up, uh, and all of that." Right. It's Jennifer Aniston. Right. <laughs> well, that's amazing. I mean, um, but we know. could imagine that, but we don't know. And the crucial question is to actually examine the activity of neurons like this, and then also to look at their connections. Right. So, so that, that's what has been, has been very difficult or impossible for neuroscientists in the past, which is to compare the connections of neurons to what they encode about the world. 
Um, you are proposing, I mentioned earlier, that this book, in a sense, is a kind of proposal. Yes, it's an argument for what neuroscience should be studying. It's a, it's a point of view. So you're proposing something like the equivalent of the Human Genome Project, but applied to what you call, and others call, the connectome, uh, an incredibly ambitious attempt to map all of the connections in the brain, which, by the way, is a lot tougher than mapping the human genome. Yes. Now, I think that there's potential for misunderstanding here because I am proposing that we undertake this long quest to map a human connectome, which could take decades. But I'm not claiming that we have to get all the way to the end of that quest to learn something. Mm -hmm. If that were the case, maybe then it's not worth it. In the book, I'm trying to point out that along the way, even if we can do partial connectomes of small pieces of brains, we'll learn something. So we'll learn something at every, at every milestone of this long journey uh, well before we actually get to the end of it. Well, if we look at our understanding of the genome, it's progressed over the decades long before we completed the mapping of the human genome. And one of the things that had been discovered fairly early on, I think in the, I think by the late 50s, maybe it was the early 60s, was the actual basis of the genetic code, the fact that, you know, three letters of the genetic alphabet are used to encode information that corresponds to one amino acid in a protein, and therefore when you string together a bunch of these triplets, you have the code for an entire protein, which is one, yes. of, one of the ways genes work. So that, that was all figured out a long time ago, and completing the, the mapping of the human genome was icing on the cake in a way. Um, now, well, I, well, I wouldn't argue. I wouldn't argue that the coding problem was completely solved because early on we understood how a genome encodes the sequence of a protein. But the next problem is to understand from the sequence of a protein what function it performs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And that might involve, for example, solving the protein folding problem. If you take a protein of a given sequence, can you predict? the shape that it will eventually fold into, yeah. that problem is still uh, it's gigantic. unsolved. Yeah, it's unsolved. a huge problem. Um, but if we look at, uh, you know, a parallel, I don't want to force it too far, but between your proposed mapping of the connectome and the mapping of the human genome, part of the code, you know, was figured out very early. Now, the connectome code, the way in which particular connections within the brain, in a sense, encode a memory or a behavior or yes. some of their mental function, that has not been cracked at all, right? The reflex arc is one example Yes. of a at least partially successful decoding. Right. But, uh, but you're right that very little progress has been made. But you don't think we should wait to crack the code before we start uh, mapping things? Uh, you think that we can just start mapping and maybe figure out the code as we go along? Imagine that you were given a book in an ancient script that's unknown. You could try to decode it, right? Yeah. But if you couldn't even see the letters in the book, what kind of start could you make in decoding it? <laughs> okay. Point well That's taken. the date that we're at. <laughs> um, this, this project that you're proposing is you know, incredibly hard. Would you be working with... Um, you'd have to be working with dead brains, yeah? You'd have to be slicing up brains uh, and imaging them. That's right. The Unfortunately, the only method that we know of that has enough resolution to see the all the neurons and synapses is to use dead brains and subject them to electron microscopy. Right. And then there's the incredibly difficult task, which um, 
you talk about, of identifying, tracing all of those branches. Not easy because what we're looking at when you see these electron micrographs of the sliced brain is like a, a tangle of um, a fishing line, you know, uh, from an inept fisherman's fishing pole times, again, a billion. It's this unbelievably complicated jumble or spaghetti uh, of wires, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> and you have developed some software, I guess, or some algorithms that help computers to do this in, in semi-automatic fashion, to, to follow these, these traces wherever they lead? Yes, and neuroscience is entering this big data phase, which I guess the whole world is entering, where we have so much ability to acquire data, but limited ability to analyze it. Yeah. We can now generate images that, of the brain's wiring, but to trace the paths of all those wires through, through those images is extremely time-consuming for a person. So the, what are the possible kinds of ways of acceleration? One of them is to use artificial intelligence, and my lab has been involved in developing ways to make computers smarter. Uh, to do this task. But still, computers make mistakes. As you know, robots don't see nearly as well in real life as they do in science fiction movies. Mm -hmm. So we still need humans to correct the errors of the AI. And we've developed a new website which tries to mobilize the public to help us in the quest to map connectomes. Really? How? Effectively, this website, which is called iWire.org, so I like E-Y-E, your eyeball. Effectively, this website is a three-dimensional coloring book of which each page is an image of the retina, the sheet of neural tissue at the back of the eye. Yeah. And you can help the AI color in one of the objects in this coloring book, which is a branch of a neuron. If you do that, you'll help us trace the, the wires inside the retina. Color it in. It's really like a game of coloring. It's like you're back in kindergarten. So you've got the outlines, but it's just a matter of filling them in with the color? Exactly. The images have the outlines, and it's a matter of filling in the regions inside these outlines. Just stay inside the boundaries. Don't color over the lines. Now, why can't the silly AI do that itself? Well, the images, like our lives, have imperfections. So they're fuzzy or they're hard to read, and so the AI is not perfect. If the images were completely perfect, then the AI would have no trouble. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, you know, this gets back to the, some of the AI software that you're, you've come up with, this um, intelligent software. It, it's trying to, um, it is trying to overcome, a, I guess, a longstanding problem in computer pattern recognition, which is recognizing boundaries between objects. Yes, yes. When they're fuzzy or, or uncertain, we humans are really good at that? Yes, well, you're right. So if early on people wanted to solve computer vision, they wanted to make robots see by creating a computer program that would take any image of the world and turn it into a line drawing, the same way that a cartoonist can. Uh -huh. And then once you had that line drawing, then you could uh, recognize the various objects that exist in the world. Right. That sounds trivial, but actually it's really hard to get a computer to make that line drawing. So, so far you've been trying to improve the computer's ability to do that, but in the meantime, uh, at this point, it's still a collaboration between humans and computers. That's right, and that's crucial because the way we actually make computers smarter is by training them to emulate humans. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So if we make a, a system where humans and computers work together, then the computer could have the potential to continuously get smarter over time. Right. Um, now, now you having invented at least some of the artificial intelligence that might be extremely useful in this this massive project to, to trace all of the connections in the brain. Do you have a financial stake in this? I wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> but this is one of those projects that could have huge potential to enhance human life, uh-huh. but it's long-term. Yeah. And therefore, it's too early for commercialization. Uh-huh. uh-huh. I, I actually am part of a company that is using brain imaging to help discover drugs. But that is not related to this more long-term project of tracing brain's connections. Right. Um, But your software and other people's software might play an analogous role, in part, to some of the uh, genetic sequencing technology that has progressed so rapidly in the last, uh, you know, 20 years that it once cost a fortune to sequence a genome, and it's getting cheaper by the day. Yes, that's an extremely competitive field. People are inventing so many interesting ways of sequencing DNA. And I hope that there will be that similar kind of activity in in neuroscience. I think the problem is that society is really good at encouraging innovation when there's lots of money to be made, which is what's happening in in genomics. The the problem is to get a field to the point where there is money to be made. Yeah. That's, the, that's when it's hard to attract talent. We could much more quickly solve this problem if lots of ta- talent came to work on it. And part of the reason I'm writing this book is to let people know how inspiring the quest is so that more talent will come, even at a stage where there's not a lot of money to be made. There must be, you must know a fair number of naysayers who are saying, whoa, too expensive, uncertain rewards for this, this expedition you're proposing this moonshot or, or this Manhattan Project. Um, do you hear a lot of that? Sure. I, see, I, I can hear people say that this is not the right way to, to study the brain, that we won't learn enough from this. It's too technically challenging to be possible. But I personally am tantalized by the data that exists in these images. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite of your normal situation. The normal situation in science is that you can't get the information you need out of the system. In this case, the microscopes are now producing huge amounts of images, and we know that the information we want is in there. We just can't extract it yet. So that's, that's what's tantalizing. It's right in front of us. All we've got to do is figure out how to analyze it, and we'll get that information out. It's not that we can't measure it, that, which is the typical case in science. Yeah. Um, if you were to achieve this, how big a data set would you then have? I mean, we talked about the fact that there are roughly 100 billion neurons estimated, that among them are, are, are thousands of connections per neuron, which equals, what, hundreds of trillions of connections overall? Well, let's talk about a cubic millimeter of brain tissue. Yeah, and multiply that by all the cubic millimeters in the brain? Yeah, so if okay. a cubic millimeter of brain tissue, if you imaged it at, with an electron microscope, that's one petabyte of data. Okay. And a petabyte is a quadrillion million gigabytes or a billion megabytes. It's about a billion photos in your digital album. If I'm not mistaken, it's, qu- it's a quadrillion bytes, right? 
I don't even know okay. <laughs> the word for it. That that might be right. Peta that com- might be right. It comes after so, Terra. It comes after yeah, Terra. Okay, Ter- okay, Terra is good. a trillion. That's good. Yeah, so I think it's a quadrillion. So you're saying that's one cubic millimeter. That's one cubic millimeter, and then there's a million cubic millimeters in your brain. Okay, I'm not going to do that calculation because I, I don't remember what... <laughs> Yeah, sextillion or something like that. But so we're happy. So we we'd be happy with a cubic millimeter because that's kind of the length scale at which things get really interesting. Um, if you could easily find connectomes of a cubic millimeter, you would make amazing discoveries in science. So that's the challenge. We don't have to do an entire brain, but right. a cubic millimeter will tell us a lot. Would would this data set then um, not only describe each of the branches and connections that is synapses? But also the the quality of each synapse, right? Just how strong it was, and whether it was excitatory or inhibitory, to to name two types of synapse, right? Yes. So this is an unsolved problem, which is to get the maximum amount of information about synaptic functionality from its appearance in the images. So you're right that it's whether it's excitatory or inhibitory could p- perhaps be just seen in the images. How strong it is might also be estimated from its size. And I think people will invent other methods of trying to predict how a synapse functions in, in the live brain from its appearance in a dead brain. Wow. But, but you're saying that all the information you might need to figure out how this thing works, if you could you know, develop this coding or, or, or decoding of, of connections, all of that information might include stuff that's not even quite visible uh, it, it might not be visible oh in, your, in an electron microscope uh-huh. image, and you might need to supplement that with other kinds of images, and people are working on that. Okay, okay. Now, interestingly, um, one word that you may use once or twice in your book, but not very much, is consciousness. Yes. Uh, that was deliberate, right? That's deliberate because so many books have been written on the C word. Yes, <laughs> I like it. I didn't have much to add there. <laughs> And it gets people into trouble, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I'm not saying that it gets them into trouble. I just, I just prefer to talk about things that are maybe newer to my audience. But also, consciousness, and I think people may not appreciate this, consciousness is really only one aspect of the self. It's the dynamic, ever-changing self. Mm-hmm. But there's another notion of the self, which is the stable one. Right? Every day you wake up and your spouse is basically the same person. Although I joke, maybe you would wish that it would not be the case, but, but they're basically the same. And their consciousness has gone through all kinds of changes as they've been sleeping and as they wake up and, and so on and so forth. What accounts for that stability of a person through time? So the dynamic, ever-changing consciousness is presumably based on neural activity, which also is constantly changing. But the stable self is most probably based on the connectome, which changes more slowly. Mm-hmm. That, that is one of the great mysteries, I mean, to my mind, uh, of the brain, not just consciousness, but the durability, you know, of, of what we That's call right. personality. Um, you know, I mean, psychologists, of course, have created an industry around trying to alter personalities a little bit, modify things, and it's really hard. Indeed. People complain about their inability to change themselves. Often in uh, relationships, of course, we are 
irritated by our partners' inability to change, and we're frustrated by our own inabilities to change, even when we recognize that we've made mistakes. And we keep on making those same mistakes over and over again. And you blame our connectome. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a question of whether the glass is half full or <laughs> half empty, right? So on the bright side, connectomes do change. But on the, the downside, sometimes it's difficult. Yeah. Well, and, and science, science, we look to science for answers about this, but we still don't know what the limitations are of connectome change. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're right that we are our connectomes, which is something you say in the book. Yes. You're famous for saying this, actually. Um, people can watch you saying it in your famous TED Talk. <laughs> if you're right, though... It's, it's, it's sobering to know that this is my greatest achievement, <laughs> the, the, the creation of a slogan. <laughs> you're to blame for it, dude. You chose it. <laughs> um, but if you're right, then, then... I wish I had a Nobel Prize instead, <laughs> but it's, all I have is this stupid slogan. <laughs> uh, but if you're right about it, um, then, in fact, those people who think they might be able to preserve themselves by freezing their heads in a cryonic vat may be right, because if the freezing process is done well enough that the connectome is actually preserved, all of the connections between all the neurons in their brain, that then indeed the essence of their self, of their personality, might be preserved. And, you know, this is a, it's a long shot, but somebody might be able to, as they hope, uh, thaw out that brain and, uh, and uh, resurrect the, the person, Right. Yes, well, you could, again, take that optimistically or pessimistically. So <laughs> yeah. the idea that you are your connectome sounds good for cryonics because it means that a self might be preserved even though the brain is dead, even though there's no neural activity. As long as those connections are intact, it may be that the essence of a person's identity is still preserved. Right. So that's the good news for cryonics. Right, right. But the bad news for cryonics is that we don't know whether their preservation procedures actually leave the connectome intact right. because the brain starts to disintegrate as soon as you die, and it could be that those wires become untraceable. It could be that synapses are so damaged that they can't be recognized anymore. In that case, the connectome would have been erased, and any effort, you know, no matter how advanced the future civilization got, if the information is gone, there's no way they're bringing you back. Right. So we, that's one of the many unknowns. We also don't know whether a company such as the one you talk about, Alcor, the Alcor um, Life Extension Foundation in Scottsdale, Arizona, we really don't know whether they're going to be around uh, with those vats still running, uh, you know, in 100 years or so, when and if the, the ability to revive the, the, the frozen brain comes about. So there's a lot. There's a lot of unknowns, but nonetheless, right. well, that's a, that's a kind of uh, objection for that an economist might make. <laughs> so I'm only concerned with the scientific objections. So that's what I'm qualified to talk about. Okay. <laughs> well, let's uh, let me ask you, Sebastian. This is probably, I'm probably not the first one to ask you this, but do you have plans for your brain at the end of your life? I have not made any plans, but as my friends know, I'm quite a procrastinator. So that. <laughs> That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Would you give it to science, to people like you, to sequence your connectome? That would be amazing. Come on, come on if, put your money if, where your mouth is, my field, or your brain where your mouth is. Could, <laughs> if my field progressed to the point, and I lived long enough to see that point, that an entire human connectome could be found, I would love to donate my brain for science. Okay, well, we'll hold you to it. 
right. <laughs> <laughs> Sebastian, thanks, thanks a bunch. It's been fascinating. Oh, thanks. You've asked such intelligent questions. I've, uh, I've never been interviewed in such depth before. Sebastian Sung is a professor of computational neuroscience at MIT and the author of Connectome, How the Brain's Wiring Makes Us Who We Are. And before I uh, go, I just want to acknowledge a problem that Sebastian and I sidestepped in our conversation when we were talking about the so-called Jennifer Aniston neuron. Now, if you could even imagine a way in which a neuron, or a group of neurons for that matter, could encode the idea of Jennifer Aniston, could represent the idea of Jennifer Aniston, you would then raise the question, represent to whom? Now, this is a very old problem in the study of consciousness, and I'm really glad that Sebastian and I didn't have to confront it this time around. But I do intend to tackle it head-on in a future episode of this show, so I hope you'll join me then. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, saying so long until next week, and you can always check us out on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com.